Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 238. My name is Terry Frost and I have a head cold. So as I was developing this head cold over the last little bit of time, I put out there on social media that people could ask me questions like an, or ask me anything on Reddit. And so people have sent me questions to answer about movies. And that's what I'm going to do this time around, to the best of my ability. Um, it may be a little bit staccato. My throat may give out. Who knows? It's all a mystery. But sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and I'll start talking at you with a somewhat rough voice, redolent with mucus. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is everybody? It's very windy today, so you may well hear some wind rattling against the window of the man cave. And yes, the man cave does have a window. Uh, Yeah, I'm not well. I've got a flu bug or a cold bug. It shouldn't be the flu because I got my flu injection. And overall, it seems to have been successful over the last few years. So I haven't really been particularly unwell at any stage over the last couple of years. More so since I retired. Uh, Work really fucks you up. So, uh, yeah, so I've got a head cold, um, kind of runny nose, coughs, that kind of thing. And so it takes away from your mental capacity as well. Your body's just going, oh, fuck, I want to shut down for a while and just drink soup and watch movies, which is not a bad thing to do, of course. But I thought as this was coming on yesterday, Sunday, I would then have a go at uh, doing an AMA and ask me anything in the manner of the Reddit AMAs that celebrities do. And I got a response. Surprise, surprise, I got a response. And it was it had to be about movies because I didn't want people getting too personal and gynecological about me. So uh, a lot of people have asked me a whole bunch of things and I'm going to respond to them. So before I get into that, um, I'll do the usual, which is what I've been doing and what I've been watching. So what have I been doing? Uh, well, Sally and I, fortunately, as a part of my redundancy, I'm getting a big tax check because it's a lot, I haven't really earned much money in the last year, but I got that big whack of money and the tax was taken out of it. And so I get a tax refund and we're kind of thinking, well, we had some plans to go to Japan next year in September. So we've got, okay, well, let's go in April instead because we've now got the money to pay for a trip to Japan for about 13 days. So that's what we're doing. We have already purchased the tickets. The tax refund is on its way. And in April next year, we're going to Tokyo and also Osaka for a few days. So we're planning that and going mad with Japanophilia or Nipponophilia, whichever you prefer. And so we're going to be going to Japan. And I'm going to podcast and also probably do some YouTube videos from the land of the rising sun. It's very exciting. Uh, It's still eight months away, of course, but we are looking forward to it. I haven't had an overseas holiday in a very long time. My good friend Alex Ozan uh, has arranged for the airfares and he's looking into the accommodation for us as well. And shout out to Alex, who is a lovely guy and also fortunately a travel agent. I've known Alex since he was a child. So uh, yeah, he's, he's done the right thing by us. He's a lovely guy. And uh, so that's coming up next year. I'm going to be over there for my birthday in April next year, which is going to be wild. 12-hour flight there, 12-hour flight back with Japan Airlines, and I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, I will be picking up some movies, of course. I'll probably pick up some Gachapon capsule toys, a bit of anime stuff. Uh, We're going to try to get to the Studio Ghibli Museum, and we're also going to do a bit of a side trip to Hiroshima because when you've got the opportunity to kind of honour that particular 
mistake in history you take the take the opportunity so we're going to do that as well i've never been to a place where they've dropped a nuclear weapon and so i'm probably going to be a bit sad about that but i can probably roll it into some uh podcast movies about the dropping of the bombs on hiroshima so there's always an upside sally's also very excited about doing it we've been watching a ton of youtube tutorials on what to do and how to do it when you go to japan and i think we're a bit burnt out on those i must have watched a hundred of them but so we're taking a little bit of a break from that. We know where we want to be and when. And so we're going to liaise with Alex and arrange for the accommodation. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be going from Tokyo to Osaka on the bullet train. So we're going to go Shinkansen, which is going to be very cool. Trains traveling over 300 kilometers an hour. Yeah, 21st century, baby. you got to love it. So that's uh first thing that we've kind of been doing is planning the Japanese holiday. Apart from that, not too much else. I've been going to the gym regularly until this bug hit. And I'm kind of that's the thing that pisses me off most about having this bug is the fact that I can't kind of keep up on the health kick just right now, but I will do so. And um, I want to kind of be in good nick for all the walking we're going to do on that holiday. Okay, so what have I been watching? Uh, I did the radio gig again, and Michaela and I talked about Ant-Man and the Wasp which was a lot of fun. And we talked about superhero movies in general. We kind of spread it out a little bit from just looking at uh, the one movie and talked about it. One of the things I mentioned, which I may have mentioned in a podcast before, I apologize if I have, is the fact that pod uh, that um, superhero movies are kind of like Westerns in a way. A lot of the early Westerns were aimed at kids, but then as time went on, a lot of Westerns were um, angled for a more adult audience and so the Westerns developed into a kind of umbrella for telling a whole bunch of different stories. There's even a version of Othello done as a Western, and there's Jubal with uh, Ernest Borgnine in it. So I kind of compared superhero movies to Westerns and said that the superhero movie is a container for telling a whole bunch of different kinds of stories. And so in that sense, it's going to have legs. It's going to continue for at least the next decade or so simply because it is a good capsule for telling stories. Most of the movies I actually watched during the fortnight, I'd never seen Streets of Fire, the Walter Hill movie, with Michael Paré in it, and Deborah Van Valkenburg and Willem Dafoe and all those kind of guys. To be honest with you, it probably would have played better had I seen it in the 80s when it came out, but it was a bit kind of underwhelming and a little too self-consciously stylish for my tastes. And yeah, I know that's anathema to a lot of people, but um, I've got the Blu-ray. I picked it up quite cheaply. And so I thought I'd give it a go. And yeah, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad for one moment. But the reputation it has seems to be more than the disc contained. You can disagree with me if you like, but that's okay. Uh, I saw a recent movie called American Assassin with Michael Keaton and a bunch of other people in it. About an American guy in his 20s whose girlfriend is killed in a soft target terrorist attack and who then goes and tries to kill the guy responsible for it as a kind of one-man vengeance thing. He gets recruited by the CIA and has to help them with the theft of a nuclear weapon. It's got lots of action stuff in it. The best bit of it, though, is right at the end, and this is a spoiler, so if you want to watch American Assassin you don't want a spoiler, tune out for 30 seconds. When they drop a nuke in the middle of the Mediterranean, that's kind of cool. That, in fact, was the best of the movie. Michael Keaton was pretty good. But nonetheless, it's, um, yeah, it's not as good as it should have been in some ways. The characters are a bit thin. The action sequences are nothing groundbreaking. But if you're into that kind of thing, it might be worth streaming at some stage. So here's where I've got to give a shout-out to Mike White of the Projection Booth podcast because I recorded an episode, which is upcoming, of the Projection Booth with Mike and also Jay Bauman from um, Red Letter Media. They do a lot of stuff on YouTube, Half in the Bag, and uh, Best of the Worst and all those sort of things. You should check those guys out. Jay's a nice guy. And we did the 1989 Brian Usner movie, Society, which I have a lot of sympathy for right now because I'm full of slime and goo, just like the people at the end of this movie during what they call the shunting. Uh, we had fun recording about that. If you don't know about Society or haven't seen it in a long time, you should check it out. It's interesting. I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but it's an interesting film. And any movie where 
the bad guys are rich is never a bad thing in these parlous times. I recorded that two week, two days ago, sorry, on Saturday, just as I was coming down with the bugs. So if I'm not my usual scintillating self during that one, I apologize. But seemed to enjoy it. And um, it was kind of cool chatting with Jay and also chatting with Mike about it. So I watched that. From there, Sally and I watched Rampage, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie, based on a very primitive and very old computer game. You've got a giant ape, you've got a giant wolf that flies, and you've got a giant crocodile. What more do you need? Smashing into buildings, doing all sorts of things. The gorilla's charismatic as fuck. And again, it's one of those big, dumb movies which is there for the spectacle. It's no better than it needs to be, but it is a little bit of fun. It's, uh, again, something you might want to stream if you're in the mood for that kind of film. Then I went back to the 1980s again for Silver Bullet, the vampire movie starring Corey Haim and uh, Gary Busey, based on the Stephen King story. And, yeah, it holds up pretty well. I mean, the werewolf itself isn't all that great, but the story holds up, the characters hold up, and it's... uh, it might be worth doing for a future Martian drive-in podcast because I think there's enough there to warrant a closer examination. I enjoyed it. Uh, I've forgotten a lot of the plot points, which is always good. Hadn't seen it since VHS days, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's, it's um, worth checking out. Then I went to one of the big blockbuster movies of the 1960s, so big, in fact, that it had an intermission to it. And that's Ice Station Zebra with uh, Rock Hudson, Patrick McGowan, Ernest Borgnine, and a bunch of other character actors, including Jim Brown. It's one of the later John Sturgis movies, and it does suffer for being pretty much set-bound. All the um, ice station sets are on a soundstage rather than on location. There is some nice photography of submarines submerging, which was kind of groundbreaking technology in 1968 when this thing came out. But um, it's a bit slow in places. It's very much a sausage fest because there are only two women in the whole movie and neither of them gets a speaking part and both of them are in the same pub scene. It's based on an Alastair MacLean novel and it had a kind of long pre-production. They were talking about bringing back Gregory Peck and David Niven from The Guns of Navarone to star in it at one stage. But if you're in the mood for that kind of 1960s action film, go for it. But it's nothing particularly wonderful looking at it from a modern viewpoint. Uh, McGowan's probably the most valuable player in this one as uh, a British secret agent, which is a role with which he was quite familiar by this stage in the 1960s, having done Danger Man, a.k.a. Secret Agent. And he was in the middle of filming The Prisoner when he made Ice Station Zebra. Um, So McGowan's worth it. If you're going to watch it for any reason, Patrick McGowan will be the reason. He's got his tongue a little bit in the cheek and he knows he's just in a big, dumb action film and acts accordingly. So I'm going to take a break now, play you some music, and when I get back, I'm going to start answering the Ask Me Anything questions about movies. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it to Gravy Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate too. Here's Cacciatore Dore. Taste of bologna Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes. Hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen alone. You better eat if it kills you. Pass me a pancake, mandrake. Having a derby, derby. Look in the fendel, mendel. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Hannah, Davy, Tommy, Dora, mandrake. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Pasta Fazula, Tolula. Oh, do have a bagel, bagel. Now don't be so bashful, Nashville. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Hey, this is a party, Marty. There, you get the cherry, Jerry. Now look, don't be so picky, Mickey. Cause 
everybody eats when they come to my house. All of my friends are welcome. Don't make me coax you, mooch you. Eat the tables, the chairs, the napkins, who cares? You gotta eat if it chokes you. Oh, do have a knish, knishya. Ask him the latke, matke. Chili con carne for Bonnie. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Face, buster, chair, chops, fump. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Of course, that was Cab Calloway with Everybody Eats When They Come To My House. Okay, from here on, I'm actually recording a day later because I haven't been feeling well. I've been snotting and coughing and all sorts of things. So I'm going to get this podcast done. But if I'm not at 100% as far as content's concerned, blame the bug. So I've got some questions, as I said, and so I'm doing the AMA. And I'm going to start out with one from Sally. Uh, my dear darling wife, Sally, has asked a question. She says, have any movies made you feel physically sick whilst watching them? No snarky Star Wars answers. Um, It's kind of hard because I don't have much of a kind of vomit reflex as a rule. But um, watching the first Human Centipede movie was pretty kind of gross out and and nasty in various ways. Solo has the same effect, really. Uh, But as far as making movies making me physically sick... It kind of doesn't happen like that for me. I mean, I can be repulsed by what I see on the screen and kind of find them incredibly repugnant from a a number of different viewpoints. But nothing has actually made me feel physically unwell to this time. And as time goes on, I tend to avoid movies that make me feel like I've been swimming through sewerage and hospital waste. It's not my kind of thing. Torture porn and things like that I find kind of repulsive because there's a sadistic aspect to them and there's no point to a lot of them it's just purely for the shock value and to make the gore and the guts and everything as realistic as possible it just doesn't work for me in a lot of levels okay linda smith sent me a question on facebook which is nice say hi so hi linda uh, i used to know linda when i was living in sydney she says do i have a secret favorite awful movie Well, not really a secret one, because I'm pretty open with the kind of awful movies that I like. There are a bunch of them. I could probably give you a list. Um, The Ginger Trilogy with uh, Sherry Kafaro, which are um, Ginger, The Ambushes and Girls Are For Loving, which is kind of sleazy, sexploitation, female James Bond movies from the 1970s. I like those. I like The Core as a science fiction movie from 2004, even though the science is really ropey. Um, I like a whole bunch of bad musicals because they've got one good scene in them. There's a really bad one that I've mentioned once before called Skirts Ahoy, which has one scene of Billy Eckstein singing in it, and the rest of the movie is total shit. There are a whole bunch of them that I've done this year on the podcast too, things like Shakes the Clown I really like, and The Silver Chalice that I did last time in the podcast last um, fortnight. I have The Cat I did as well. Let me. I'm just going through my letterbox at the moment. Just going over the last 12 months of stuff I've watched. And there's a lot of really bad movies out there that I, I kind of enjoyed. Also, the kind of obvious ones, things like The Room, Tommy Wiseau's The Room, which you watch for the fact that it's just so bad. Or a number of other movies you watch for one good performance in them. Uh, that's the lovely thing about movies. If you open yourself up to them and you kind of focus down, there can be good things in bad movies. And really fucking shit things in movies that are incredibly well regarded by most of this planet. But yeah, I mean, I don't keep a secret of them because there's no point in it. I mean, I've even talked about Deep Throat Behind the Green Door and um, The Devil in Miss Jones on the podcast in the past. So even adult films I've uh, had a chat about here and seen some virtues in some of them but not all of them. So thanks for that one, Linda. Um, on to the next one. Dusty McGowan sent me a message saying, 
What's the most terrifying movie you have ever watched? Leaving aside documentary um, and newsreel footage of various disasters, and also one video of a human beheading by ISIS that I happened upon and watched and regretted watching to this very day. Well, I kind of have to give you the backstory to tell this story. When I was a teenager, I was living with my father, who was brutal and sadistic and nasty and gaslighting and whose influence on me I still feel to this day, but have spent every day since my teens attempting to overcome. Well, maybe not every day. There was, yeah, I'm not going to go into that, but there were some times when my focus was elsewhere. So it might have been maybe 19 or 20, I forget which, but it's not really important to this story. And I was heading towards a nervous breakdown, which I indeed had. Without any psychological assistance, the resources then and where I was were simply non-existent. There wasn't anybody to help. I didn't have any friends at that stage. And it was a really bad time in my life, probably one of the two or three worst I experienced so far. And hopefully I don't experience anything like any of them in the future. Um, the Unless you've lived through something like that and experienced it, it's a bit hard to describe. It feels a little bit like you're going to explode, but your guts are made of fragile glass. It's a horrible place to be. So I did the usual thing that I did in those days, and to a certain extent still do, in that I went and saw a movie. Unfortunately, I probably needed to be in a different movie because I went and saw Dario Argento's Suspiria. Suspiria is a confronting movie. It's very full-on. The music jangles you up. The visuals are kind of full-on. And it's the only movie in a cinema I've ever walked out of, not because it was bad, because it is indeed a fine piece of work in its genre. It was because I couldn't handle it anymore. I just simply staggered out of there and kind of went into the light and the daylight of the street and walked around for a bit. I'm not sure what else I did, but I went nowhere near another cinema after that for the rest of the day because the full-on nature of Suspiria fucked me up more. And I've actually tried to watch it twice since then, and I haven't been able to. I've got an ID fix about watching that movie, which I intend to overcome at some stage, and I probably will. But it triggers me, and people are sceptical about the concept of triggering. But I can say from personal experience that it is something that happens. Most of the time I can deal with being triggered. I've learned over the last immense amount of decades ways to manage that kind of thing that enable me to function and enable me to not get fucked up by the things that trigger me. But doing that with Suspiria is something that so far has eluded me haven't seen it all the way through to the end, and I will. In fact, I should set myself a challenge to do that. If I need to, I can take a Valium and then do it, which some people would say is cheating, but fuck you, you're not there. Um, and, yeah, I probably should do that. That's a, that's a good thought. I may well do that, and I could even live vlog it or something, live vlog it or something like that to see how I go. Um, yeah, it'll be kind of interesting, and I like challenging myself. And in a fucked up way, that's probably a good way to rid myself of that particular mental tumour and kind of put it past me. Um, I probably should do that at some stage. Let you know. I'll update you. So, David, come and set a question in too. So I'll, I'll go to something a little brighter here and a little less grim and self-revelatory. Um, David says, and by the way, David's in Minneapolis, or if he's not in Minneapolis, he's definitely in Minnesota which from an Australian point of view isn't a particularly big state. Uh, David says, what was the first movie you saw and what was the first movie that had a real impact on you? That's two questions, David, not one. You fucking cheated there. Uh, first movie I saw, I can't remember the first movie I saw because I've undoubtedly seen movies. I can tell you the first movie I remember seeing and I've podcasted about that. And it is this one. Surprise anymore Cause you fooled me before 
It's a Doris Day movie, Move Over Darling from 1963, starring Doris Day, James Garner, Polly Bergen. It's also got Chuck Connors in it, and it has uh, Thelma Ritter, which is kind of cool. Don Knotts is in there as well. Edgar Buchanan. Uh, I saw it with my mum, and she took me to the cinema as a treat, just her and I, and we went and saw that on a rainy day in Sydney. That's pretty much all I remember about it, because it was 1963, and cut me some fucking slack. I'm swearing a lot this time. I apologise. Anyway, um, uh, this was a movie. It was actually, uh, they started doing it with Marilyn Monroe the year before as something called Something's Got to Give, but she got fired and then she died, so she obviously couldn't make the movie. And so that was the first one that I remember. Now, as far as the second part of the question, first movie that had a real impact on me, I mean, apart from all the childhood things like watching Jason and the Argonauts, and Valley of Guanji and the 1940 Thief of Baghdad, which I still have an incredible amount of love for. But uh, talking about movies that had a real impact on me, I can think of three. The first one is The Pawnbroker. I saw The Pawnbroker on late night television and the story of the kind of pawnbroker who was also a concentration camp survivor and all that kind of thing had a profound effect on me. I didn't quite realise how fucked up that part of history was and anything things that people endured so there was that so I've always had a kind of likeness for well not likeness but a like of Rod Steiger based on that uh the other the second one I'll kind of do them in order of importance the second one is probably um Cabaret saw that in the cinema and yeah Tomorrow Belongs to Me that scene and a whole bunch of other scenes like that made me challenge my preconceptions about how the world was and also the kind of gay theme in it, I had, that challenged the homophobia with which I was raised. So that was quite important from that point of view and opening my eyes to some things. The third one is a movie that a lot of people love, and rightly so, and it's The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster, because I was used to seeing Burt Lancaster in things like The Crimson Pirate and all of those swashbuckling things and His Majesty O'Keefe, which is still a movie I love. And then seeing, not necessarily toxic masculinity though there is an aspect of that in ned merrill in the swimmer but seeing damaged masculinity and crushed masculinity and somebody who presented well but was actually going through a lot of shit that was something that resonated with me and that kind of tragic epic ending of it uh, i hadn't seen a movie that ended that way it wasn't something that previous movies had set me up for i was used to the usual hollywood arc and redemption or 
the bad guys die or something like that, but not one where somebody is utterly crushed and crouching as a storm blows through a deserted house, outside a deserted house. Wasn't ready for that, but it is one of those things that opened my eyes to the possibilities of telling stories outside the normal story arcs of Hollywood. So that one was profound, and it's a movie I still love. I'm so glad I have a Blu-ray of that film. Uh, it's one of those ones that I treasure. And I really should re-watch that soon. Um, yeah, it's about Jew. So apart from the immense piles, which are at least a metre and a half high, of things to watch on discs, not to mention the things that are on hard drives, i still got one punch man and things like that to watch and all of the patrick mcgoon danger man i'll get around to it but the swimmer's definitely on that list it's a, a profoundly interesting movie for me and it shows bert lancaster picking really interesting properties at a certain stage in his career and really making them work so thanks for that one david as you might hear my throat's starting to get sore here but I'm going to persevere, I'm going to punch through this shit and get stuff done. The next one comes from a good friend, uh, mostly from online, but I have met him in Meat Space, Chris Bowbridge, who is the husband of previous podcast guest Alyssa Krasnerstein. Uh, Bowbridge is going through a period of getting some unusual rugby injuries. He had a, he got his ear torn, he got a hamstring injury and all sorts of other things. So I was sending you my best wishes, Chris, even though you gave me this fucking question. And that's a justified use of the F word, by the way. So, Baybridge says, if you wanted to inflict pain on the ones you love, what movie would you make them watch? Well, I'll probably narrow that down to Sally just to keep it simple for the sake of the podcast. And there is also the problem of making her watch anything. She, I haven't even got her to watch Casablanca yet. Tonight, we did watch My Neighbor Totoro because we're going to Japan. I said, you've got to see the Miyazaki movies. So we started out with Totoro and she liked it, but she was kind of coloring in um, one of her mindfulness books at the same time. So she wasn't giving it full attention. For me, I enjoyed it a lot watching it. Um, and I still love the um, the re seeming realism of the children in My Neighbor Totoro, apart from all the other fun things like the cat bus and Totoro and the um, soot sprites and all the other bits and pieces that make it magical. I still love those kids. They were kind of great, and they felt emotionally real to me. So if I wanted to um, inflict pain on her, and it's not real pain, so let's not kind of go into anywhere sadistic with this. If I wanted to, and she had to watch a movie with me for reasons of losing a bet or something, I'd probably do Les Demoiselles de Rochefort. Uh, the Young Girls of Roachford, which is the, one of my favourite musicals, and it's a Jacques Demi musical, and it's joyous and full of life, and I've watched it so many times it drives her mad when I watch it. So I'd probably throw that at her. Um, it's fantastic. I think it's the kind of movie that Alyssa might like, Chris, but that you probably won't. Though you may surprise me. There's always that possibility. Sometimes people's taste in movies and the things that they react to aren't the things we think they're going to react to, and that's all part of the love and the fun and the wonder and the magic of being a film buff. So The Young Girls of Roachford, fantastic. I really should try to find a cheap copy of that and throw it up to your place so that you guys can watch it. So thanks for that, Chris. Uh, by the way, if this podcast sounds a little staccato and kind of disjointed, it is because of the frequent breaks I'm taking while I'm um, recording it to kind of nurse my throat through this be honest with you guys, this is one of the more difficult podcasts I'm doing because I had a coughing fit from all the mucus pouring down my throat about two hours ago and it was um, not a pretty sight. Not that I threw up or anything like that, but it was just very, very unpleasant for me. So Matt Davey, my good friend Matt Davey has sent through a question. Um, I'm sending out good vibes to Matt too because he's just been in hospital recently. I won't go into details because I'm not spilling the, my guts on other people's medical problems. But good, good vibes there, Matt. Okay, so here we go. Have you thought of about... Here, let me start again. Have you thought about curating a movie festival at Shadow Frost? It would have to be unofficial due to cost, but watching a movie with you live commentating and or podcasting would be fascinating. Um, I wouldn't do that. I don't like talking during movies. Um, if I was doing a commentary track, that would probably be a different thing, which I could kind of work into a film. 
But if I was going to do something like that, uh, first thing I'd do is I'd top and tail it. I'd talk about it at the beginning and then talk about it at the end after people had watched the film because I think that works better. Lee Gambin is doing it with Cinemaniacs here in Melbourne. I think they're doing De Palma's Sisters soon, amongst other films. Um, his taste in movies and mine are a little bit different. There are some movies he likes that I think are kind of atrocious, and there are movies that I like that he might think are atrocious. So it's a broad world. But um, what I have thought about, and what I will never be organised enough to do, because I have enough trouble just being organised enough to do the podcast and an occasional YouTube video, is to run a short film festival in a public venue. Um, I'd have to get someone else to do the organisation, and I'd have to be the kind of curator of it. But it will be fun, and uh, I could pick some good movies. It depends on the rights you get, and there are all sorts of hassles that come with that and stuff that I really don't want to fill my head with because I'm kind of, I've got to the stage of life when I'm over bureaucracy and I'm over that kind of gut work. Um, I've enjoyed the creative parts of things and, and putting together um, film editing and stuff like that. I did uh, one of Sal's videos recently, and I'm digressing here, but I know, for her YouTube channel, Middle Age Gamer Girl, where we did some um, recorded footage of her gameplay while she did a voiceover, and I kind of enjoyed doing that because she gave me a whole bunch of clips, which was great, and I kind of put them in a narrative form with her narrative, and that kind of stuff I enjoyed doing, but as far as the signing of contracts and getting the money together to run a film festival apart from anything else, that kind of stuff's a, a bit of a difficult one for me. But yeah, I'd like to do it. I'd like to kind of program things that I like, which is, of course, one of the reasons why people would do a film festival. Things like The Thief of Baghdad I'd do, and The Young Girls of Roachford, and probably The Swimmer. Uh, I'd try to go somewhere eclectic, like if I could get a decent print, Goodbye Paradise, the Australian film, which is one of my favourites. A decent print of um, Alan Arkush's Get Crazy would be fantastic to do. There, I could probably run film festivals back-to-back for the next 20 years, and still not repeat on the movies that I'd like to uh, kind of give to a wider audience, which is one of the reasons why I do the podcast, is to go, okay, here's something cool and hip, try this. And that's kind of the thing that I love most about doing the podcast and the radio and the other creative things that I do. But as far as um, kind of commentating through a movie, not really something that I'm attracted to because... I'd really just just shut up and watch the film again for the most part, but I think top and tailing it would be something with which I'd have a lot more fun and to which I'd be more attracted. Okay, so next question. A good friend of the podcast, Chris Mount, says, favourite anime and what got you into Yu-Gi-Oh? Uh, my favourite anime. So I'm going to pick a few. I'm not going to just do one. So here's my favourite anime. Um, I mean, I grew up with anime to a certain extent. When um, I was a kid in the 60s on TV, there were anime being shown. There was Prince Planet. There was Astro Boy, of course. There was Marine Boy. There was Phantom Man. There was Princess Knight, which was now known as Princess Sapphire. And by the way, if anybody wants to buy me a present, there is a Princess Sapphire Funko Pop vinyl that I'm lusting after, but I can't afford at the moment. Um, and so I grew up with anime even in the 1960s, which is kind of cool. I uh, had my uncles at Christmas bought me a wind up um, Astro Boy toy, which spins around um, a gimbal and kind of you know, went around on a propeller thing. It was very, very cool. And um, thank them for that, though they are no longer on this planet. Also, Speed Racer and things like that. So, they were my first loves. Favourite anime now? I've probably got maybe two or three. First off, Urusai Yatsura, um, those obnoxious aliens, which I really like. That's um, a Rumiko Takahashi series from late 80s, maybe early 1990s. Um, I I really like that one. It's got a cool theme song apart from anything else. So I like that kind of kawaii stuff with that. Um, I also like another one of Takahashi's works, Ranma half which has got a nice gender bending storyline to it which is kind of but at the moment i don't have a copy of that i really don't have to hunt down some ramma maybe when i go to japan i'll find some ramma stuff which would be kind of cool 
So I like that. Um, now, how did I get into Yu-Gi-Oh? It was on cable here in Australia. And so I watched it. And um, because you can kind of record off cable onto the uh, PVR, I watched that. And at the same time that was coming out, there were also a lot of toys hitting the market. So there were like blue eyes, white dragons, and you could get Dark Magician and um, Karibo and all the other monsters from Yu-Gi-Oh. And I like the drama of them playing this card game where the um, monsters manifest in physical form and there's a great drama and kind of over-the-topness about it that I really groove on. So I got into it because of um, that cable thing and then I kind of ran with it. In fact, I've been watching um, Yu-Gi-Oh! episodes on Netflix at the moment. I'm kind of revisiting the first season and I like the kind of um, the themes of friendship and corporate malfeasance and all those other kind of things along with these great dueling monsters. The animation's not f- spectacular. They didn't have the money to spend a lot on it, but it kind of works for me. And I like the um, I like the Pharaoh. I like Yugi Moto. I like all of the characters in it. I like Kaiba, Maximilian Pegasus, Joey Wheeler, all of, all of the characters in that I kind of groove on. Though it's not something that's kind of age-appropriate in a sense. There aren't too many Yu-Gi-Oh fans that have blown out as many birthday candles as I have. But fuck that, I'm going to enjoy it. Um, I'm going to look for some Yu-Gi-Oh stuff in Japan as well. My big things to look for in Japan, and we're going to be hitting Akihabara and um, Nakano Broadway and all those kind of places, because what I want to get is some Lum stuff, maybe Gigantor too, Tetsujin. I might get a bit of Tetsujin stuff. I want to see if I can find some Urasayatsura and anything else Rumika Takahashi's done that's kind of interesting. I'm going to be researching that. At the moment, I've got sitting on my hard drive the original series of Gundam, so I'm kind of trying to get into Gundam to see what that's about. Maybe I will stick with it. Maybe I won't. And the other thing I've got is the first season of One Punch Man. So I want to kind of get hit something a little more contemporary and get into Japanese pop culture through that means because um, there may well be some like um, One Punch Man Gachapon capsules toys. So we're going to be hitting the Gachapons pretty heavily. And also um, that we're going to Japan just before Godzilla King of the Monsters drops in the cinema. So there may well be a whole new lot of Godzilla, Godzilla, Mothra and Ghidorah and Rodan toys to pick up. So I may well go for some of those. We're saving up our shekels a lot so that we can kind of splurge a bit in Japan. But um, yeah, it's going to be fun. And I really enjoyed going back and grooving on some anime um i'm really gonna have to try to find some more prince planet because i love prince planet amongst other things and um just kind of grokking something from a culture with which i'm less familiar than say english popular culture american popular culture and of course australian popular culture Now, Chris has thrown a few questions at me, so here's the second one. Deadly Ernest or Ralph Baker memories? What movies did he introduce you? Now, I had Deadly Ernest in Sydney because Ralph Baker was the guy who did Deadly Ernest in Melbourne. But in Sydney, we had Ian Bannerman, who kind of looked, as I've said before, like Harry Palmer from The Ipcrest File as a zombie. And he was kind of cool. English accent. Very kind of cool guy. Not a gifted actor, but he introduced the horror movies really well. So what movies did he introduce me to? Um, 
It Came From Beneath the Sea, those kind of things. All of those late 1950s, early 1960s drive-in movies, we got a lot of those. It came From Outer Space, Earth Versus the Flying Saucers, all of those ones. Not necessarily the studio ones like Creature from the Black Lagoon and um, Tarantula and that kind of thing, but we got them, I think. Um, a few other giant bug movies, uh, Beginning of the End, all those kind of things. The lesser ones that weren't necessarily studio picks, Channel 10 here in Australia grabbed them by a bunch and just threw them on late at night with this goofy guy doing the um, jokes at the start and having a good bit of fun with it. It was kind of very hip to watch that. Uh, Unfortunately, as a young child, I wasn't always able to access that because grown-ups, you know, and grown-ups are the worst. But I saw enough of it to kind of engage me with that stuff. And my uncles, Roy and John, who are the er people who encouraged my kind of geeky nerdiness would let me watch it. They, they're the ones who let me stay up and watch The Outer Limits, for instance, and early episodes of Star Trek, that kind of stuff. So they, and they also took me to the cinema to see This Island Earth when it was rerun in the local cinemas. So my uncles, Roy and John Jenkins, um, I've got an immense followers for them. They weren't perfect human beings, but they were kind to me at a time when I needed kindness and they showed me cool, geeky stuff at a time before cool, geeky stuff like that was ever popular. Okay, Chris's next question. Um, least favourite movie genre and what is your favourite film in that genre? Ah, that's a tough one because I, I kind of can see good in all kinds of genres. I even like women's pictures and things like that. I don't like movies about nuns particularly. And if I was to pick a movie about a nun, it would probably be more nunsploitation than a nun movie. So I'll kind of avoid that. Maybe biblical epics. Uh, there are some that I like. But for the most part, the kind of bullshit piety that people like Cecil B. DeMille put through, where what they wanted to do was show scantily clad women dancing around and all the rest of it was just something to hang that off. And there was that kind of fake middle american 1950s piety in a whole bunch of them uh which kind of puts me off uh if i was going to pick one that i like in that genre there are a few but none of the stuff i like in them are religious of nature i like some other things um probably something as crazy as and i mentioned this in the last podcast the silver chalice really bad example great set design great over-the-top acting by jack palance and it's kind of underplays the religious aspect in a really interesting way. So probably that, though, if you ask me in a week's time, I'd probably have a different answer for you. But biblical epics, for the most part, they have a kind of worldview with which I can't really associate very well. Okay, Chris's next question, favourite science fiction books and authors. Now, surprisingly enough, having been a science fiction fan since the 1970s, I've met a bunch of science fiction authors. Some are better than their reputation, some are worse. I'm going to leave aside the people, particularly people like Harlan Ellison, leave aside some of their character flaws. But I like a lot of Ellison's work. Um, I like Frank Herbert's Dune series, though that kind of diminished off towards the end. I was big into Larry Niven once upon a time, Paul Anderson, all those hard science guys, and then I drifted into things like Bruce Sterling and William Gibson. I've met um, Gibson and he, he was quite a cool guy. Um, I've met so many science fiction writers. I'm going to have to make a list one day, just for bragging rights, really. I mean, I had dinner with Harry Harrison, for instance, in a Greek restaurant called Diethnes in Sydney, and he stole the olives off my plate, the bastard. Uh, lovely guy, and his wife, Joan, too. They were both lovely people and, and a lot of fun to be around. Uh, all of those hard science, science people. I like Joanna Russ's stuff. I like Lee Brackett, as far as women are concerned. I'm trying to read more female science fiction like N.K. Jemison now uh, because I want to kind of balance out my early influences with some stuff that shows other viewpoints. But I don't read as much science fiction as I used to because of the ubiquitous distraction that is the internet. And yes, I'm going to blame the internet for something. But I've still got, and I'm looking around, and if, you, if my voice changes in the microphone, it's because I'm looking around. I've got a lot of good things there. I've got some Vonda McIntyre sitting there, Stephen Barnes, great writer. Writes fantastic action sequences. Michael Moorcock I've got over there. Um, 
Kim Newman I like, and he seems to be a very cool guy. He's a mutual friend of some people I know. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Mick Farron. I like some of Mick Farron's stuff. The Quest for the DNA Cowboys and all that kind of stuff from the 1970s, which is kind of rock and roll-y science fiction. I like all of that kind of thing. There's a ton of it. And um, because I've been a fan of science fiction for so long, and at, at one stage it was so cheap to get the books to, you could go into, a, say, a book exchange and pick up decent science fiction novels for a buck or two each. They were secondhand, but they were in good condition, and people were churning through them. And I kind of miss secondhand bookshops because there are so few of them now. And the stuff they've got in them isn't the older stuff because people now treasure that and put it into plastic wraps. That hunting through those secondhand bookshops isn't quite as fun as it used to be. Okay, Trevor McKay, or Mackay, sorry Trevor, if I mispronounce that one way or the other. He says, excluding Star Wars, what are the, are there any generally beloved film franchises that don't work for you? Yeah, Trevor, there are. Um, the one that comes to mind is the Fast and Furious franchise. I can appreciate the individual actors in it, but it just seems to be a lot of kind of rev head silliness. And even though they talk a lot about family and a lot about the ensemble and things like that, it doesn't hold together for me outside of the spectacular and now CG-heavy um, special effects work. Uh, apart from that, I don't think the ensemble works. I don't think the kind of arc of the characters works for me particularly well. I binge-watched them all a couple of years ago, and I don't really see a need for any more. Uh, the only other one I'd mention is probably the Transformers, which are ridiculous and jump the shark about three minutes into the first movie. But um, they, just, they just don't work for me, man. That's okay. There are plenty of other franchises I like. I've been invested in the James Bond one since the 60s, so I've got that to fall back on, and there's a new one of those coming out soon. But, um, yeah, there's Fast and Furious, probably, and Transformers. If other people like them, that's perfectly fine. I haven't got a problem with that. But for me, yeah, nah. And the last question, just as my throat collapses like a exploded chimney stack, um, Tim Leiby put a question through, and it's a pretty good one. Um... The Aussie Renaissance of the 1970s, when Australia was turning out everything from exploitation movies to Academy Award-winning classics, seems to have petered out. Do you think it was just a tax break that made the time period so cinematically fertile, or were there other factors at work too? And what would it take in addition to tax breaks to bring it back? Complex question. The reason the 1970s was such a, a fertile time for Australian film uh, are more sociological than they are kind of based on the industry. The 1960s and late 1950s, there was no production in Australia. There were TV productions and there were um, the Commonwealth Film um, Unit did a lot of documentary kind of things, but there wasn't any kind of narrative cinema coming out of Australia at the time. There were a couple of things. Um, there was a remake of DOA called Colour Me Dead with Tom Tryon, um, Caroline Jones and Rick Jason in it where they imported American actors and remade DOA in an Australian context, which is interesting from a sociological and kind of um, documentary viewpoint, but not really interesting apart from that. So, comes the 1970s, the um, censorship restrictions, which were pretty severe, dropped. Not entirely, but they dropped. And also, the Whitlam government in 1972 came in and started supporting the arts. In three years, they put through an enormous amount of change in Australian society. They put in um, universal health care, free universities, um, education. They got us out of Vietnam. They did a ton of stuff. If you just look up Gough Whitlam in Wikipedia, you'll see what that did. And also they supported the film industry. And so suddenly there was money available. There was support available. There were people who could get an education in a film school because university education was free. And also the restrictions on censorship came down so that you could do a nudie movie, you could talk about adult themes, you could really go with it. And there were all these people who had been learning in TV and had been learning in the Commonwealth Film Unit. There were a shit ton of actors who had been working in television and on stage who were available. And so suddenly you had this renaissance of good, bad, indifferent, but Australian-themed and Australian-filmed movies telling our stories and kind of following some trends like um, exploitation movies and nudie films and things like that from overseas but doing it in an Australian context so you had that 
based on the repression and the change of the times. That was one thing. So a lot of films were funded by the um, Australian Film Commission and there was a um, thing called TMBA in the Income Tax Act which allowed investors 150% tax concession on investments in cinema. Now, that, that died in the late 1980s because any piece of shit was getting made. But there was a lot of support there. Um, in the 90s, that dropped off a lot. But we're producing a lot of quality television at the moment. We're producing a lot of good smaller films, which don't get a lot of oxygen in other markets, though the streaming platforms may well change that over the next five or six years. We'll be seeing more product from Australia if we produce good product. And there's a lot of good things like the um, Guy Pierce Jack Irish series of television. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen there. It's still being pumped out, but it's maybe not getting the visibility that it once did when it had a lot more novelty value. What Australians have to do is support Australian film, but not indiscriminately. There was a stage where people were expected to support Australian films regardless of the quality, but we've kind of grown up since then. But there are a lot of people up and coming now, the millennials are starting to use uh, streaming platforms and use new technologies and the ease of editing to get things going. Yeah, they're combating the rest of the world, which is all doing the same thing. But I think there's a possibility that a unique Australian film industry and a unique Australian film style, a number of styles, will continue into the future. It's just a matter of letting people know that stuff is there to access. And when they do, making sure that we've got enough quality stuff to make that really worthwhile for them. Uh, tax breaks would help because there are expenses that people don't have and there is a reluctance to for people to invest in our cinema. But I've got, I'm optimistic about it. We've got the writers, we've got the directors, we've got the crews. What we should be doing is trying to produce more stuff and let people know that it's there, let people know internationally that it's there, and to um, sell to streaming platforms, even if they want a bit of a say on some things, get your foot in the door and then do your own things later on once you've built up your reputation. So I'm not pessimistic about the Australian film industry, but I think that the changes in technologies are going to have a profound effect on them, as indeed it is already and on in a global sense as well. I think uh, it might be a smart move to do some China co-productions at the moment, um, if Australia can, though that in itself brings in more complications and more restrictions and a bit more diplomacy than a lot of people are used to doing. So, yeah, yeah there'll be stuff out there. It's just a matter of getting past everything else that's out there in order to access it. So I'm going to finish up now because my throat feels like razor blades. Thank you for listening. If you want to see more of this kind of stuff, just let me know and I'll do more AMAs and, and get people's input on things and I'll kind of answer them to the best of my ability and hopefully without the medical um, problems I've had this time around. So again, thank you to David Cummo, who is our latest uh, Patreon supporter and who's still not on the cast list, but he will be soon. And thank you to all of the other Patreon supporters and, and listeners as well. And really thank you a lot to all of the people who asked questions this time around because it gave me content when um, I wasn't at my best. I'm on the mend, but uh, the throat's still a bit weak. I'll be back uh, on the weekend with another Martian Driving podcast in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. And again, thanks for putting up with this one because it was a bit of a battle for me, to be really honest with you. But I found it a lot of fun and it stretched me to answer some of these questions. So take care of yourselves and I will be back very, very soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris, our musical director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, the casting director. Chris, the camera operator. Christopher, the gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. 
Tansy, our Foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain. Plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H., our accountant. And Kerry L., our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end. <laughs>